This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. from Dr. Ian Offer. Ian's article, Second Wave Animal Ethics, proposes a move away from the rights-based liberal tradition of animal ethics that focuses heavily on non-human sentience and similarity. Ian thinks the animal liberation movement is at a stage where, looking inwards, we can reflect, explore and experiment with theories from the margins. An intersectional post-humanist approach, which builds stronger links with the environmental movement, has much to offer both activists and those working and studying animal law. If you want to just give us an introduction then to yourself and your studies. Yeah, um, so my name is Ian Offer. My pronouns are he, him, and I identify as a queer contextual ethical vegan. Um, so I'm, I'm working as an academic and early career scholar um, in the area of global animal law and animal ethics. Um, I'm based in Scotland and I'm, I'm working on ideas of post-humanism and intersectionality in animal ethics and animal law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm writing a lot about animals and the law and structural modes of oppression that act upon animals, but other marginalized groups too. So I'm trying to use my work to improve animal activism in some ways, but um, also with a more legal dimension to improve the way that we're um, working with and, and talking about law, trying to move away from single issue kind of activism. And because of all this, a lot of my work is about theory, um, the kinds of thinking that informs our activism or for me, legal scholarship. And I guess, I guess that means I don't really have um, super cool stories from the field or, or rescue stories to tell you about, but mm-hmm. I will promise to get really nerdy and excited about why I think theory matters. And <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, actually, I, I don't think I've had people on the podcast before discussing animal law quite like in detail. So it'll be interesting to hear from you on that. Because I think like in the vegan movement or animal rights movement, we often talk about kind of like the moral side of things, but maybe don't like look at kind of like what the technicalities around like actually putting the laws in place might be. So it'd be mm. interesting to hear from you on on that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting relationship between the ethics that we kind of use and practice in our daily life and the law that we either see or want to influence. Um, and I, I guess a lot of what we want to do as activists is to, is to influence things, to, to move things forward. And a lot of that comes from policy and law. But mm. yeah, the problem is, is law, law tends to quite often be a reflection of the past that's been entrenched in writing. So mm. the challenge is to try, and, to try and push it forward, to try and take the ethical ideas that we have now and these big kind of diverse range of ethical ideas too and um, to see things move forward that's that's the challenge Mm -hmm. and 
Um, that kind of brings us on to the next question, which I was going to ask you um, maybe just to expand a bit on the difference between the animal ethics and animal law, because I often think like in a layman's perspective, the way I kind of see it, because I don't know much about law actually, is that law just seals the deal on the ethics. So when something is, you know, morally right, we create laws that make sure that people adhere to to those kind of standards or whatever. But obviously it gets a lot more complex like that because you also hear activists say stuff like just because something's legally, you know, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's morally right. So mm-hmm. there's that kind of thing where we know that like there's lots of laws that we should be breaking or shouldn't be paying attention to, but also we want to kind of create laws that um, help animals or protect animals and so on. So this conversation takes me right back to law school. (laughs) (laughs) We we spend a lot of time when we're being educated in legal systems thinking about legal philosophy and so much of legal philosophy is trying to unpack the question of what is law? Um, What what actually is this beast we're supposed to be trying to make sense of? Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is trying to figure out the relationship between law and ethics. Um, Is for one, is the relationship inevitable? Does it change? Ethics, first of all, is the branch of philosophy that deals with moral principles. It's how we figure out what uh, is right and what is wrong, the, the kinds of um, systems we use to determine that. Law is, is something different. In a really traditional sense, you could think of law as, as, as basic as a, a command backed by a sanction. It's, it's a rule and it's punishment if you don't follow it. But there's a lot more interesting work being done kind of theorizing about what law really is. And there's theories about law as violence, institutionalized violence. There's theory about law as performance, the wigs and the gowns and the whole theater of it all, which I think is really fascinating. But I guess what, what we do learn in law school is that there, there's... Um, the relationship between law and ethics is contested. So there's arguments on on both sides. Um, But what's clear to me at least is that, well, they're not the same. Um, And obviously, as you were alluding to, um, unethical laws do exist, Mm. which raises interesting questions for ethical vegans, obviously about, you know, animal liberation, you know, do we we comply with the law? How does that impact our day-to-day lives and what we do? so I, I think that's really interesting. And one of, the, one of the ways we get taught to think about the relationship between law and ethics is to think of regimes like um, the Nazi regime, for example, where obviously unjust and unethical laws are, um, are um, enacted. What does the ethically minded citizen do in that instance? Um, so they're interesting and, and challenging questions. And for me, animal ethics comes comes before the law. So animal ethics inspires law and often underpins the the kinds of tools that we use in law to protect animals. Um, What I'm particularly interested in is is the fact that a lot of legal scholars or lawmakers or policymakers or so on will argue that um, the kind of law that they work with or animal law in particular is neutral or objective, that it doesn't have this um, uh, subjective ethical um, underpinning. And what I'm interested in is trying to unpack how, well, actually these things do have an ethical underpinning. It's just maybe not obvious. So, you know, being ethical vegans, we're often (laughs) challenged, as you well know, about um, about what we believe and how we practice it and so on. What I'm trying to do in in some of my work is to to reveal that, you know, the the ostensibly neutral or or value neutral, the the status quo, there's a value in that too, Mm. you know. 
um, being silent or acquiescing or something is um, that's taking an ethical stance as well. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting actually because um, there's uh, there's a quote that vegans like to use um, on like the memes and posts, which is that if you are neutral in times of oppression, you have chosen the side of the oppressor, mm. something like that. And so that kind of makes me think of what you were talking like there about like Nazi Germany, for example, you know, what does the ethically minded citizen do? So anyway, in kind of like the main, mainstream vegan movement, often what we see is uh, like kind of well-known vegan influences not speaking up on human issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'll be the same ones who will use the that like that that saying that says if you're neutral in times of oppression and so on and so they kind of like separate out human issues like because they say you know animals first or animals only and human issues that's not my thing you know I, I don't other people go and do that and but they're so like recently there's been a lot of people asking some of these kind of like influential quote unquote people in the movement to speak up because obviously mainstream veganism has a problem with like white supremacy, racism, ableism. I mean, pretty much it's just a reflection of like society, you know, I mean, it should be, it is in, in many ways a liberatory movement, but we've, we've got a real problem with some of these issues and some of the most well-known people in this movement have no interest in speaking out on these issues at all. Um, yeah. It's interesting that the way that many people are silent on kind of animal ethics, many animal rights, so-called animal rights activists are silent on human ethics. Yeah, I, it's really challenging. And I, I struggle to know how to move past this um, a lot of the time. And I think last year and the kind of cultural presence of Black Lives Matter last year spoke volumes and revealed a lot about the um, animal liberation community that potentially a lot of us didn't want to see. One of the worst examples of um, ignorance I saw last year was um, animal activists um, writing on on Twitter or wherever um, that all animal lives matter at the Mm. time of the Black Lives Matter protest, which of course, as we know, we know all animal lives matter, but it's not the point. It's not giving that movement its space to breathe. It's not allowing it to capture public attention and to um, mm. have an impact. I think in a, in a lot of ways, um, some of the mainstream animal activist circles don't know how to talk about questions of whether it's, it's um, race or disability or, um, mm. or gender or queer issues. And I think as you, as you brought up, there's a, sometimes a lack of willingness to do this because there's this sense that it's a distraction, that yeah. these are human issues that we ought to be putting the animal first in our, our um, animal activism. But these, these oppressions all make up the same terrain. Um, when mm. I, I talk about terrain, I'm quoting from um, Af and Sil Co, who've um, written some amazing, um, amazing pieces on this. They're, Mm. writing um, black vegan feminism and they deal with a lot of these intersections in a really interesting way so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of challenges there and a a part of what i'm trying to do with um, my work on law and ethics is to try and deal with that
maybe I could say a few words about the path that I, I took to get to be doing the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, I think that a lot of us in this movement have what I like to term a vegan origin story. And I see that we use these as means to bond and understand one another. And um, I've heard more than I can count. Um, mine happened when I was around six years old. I was um, part of the Junior, junior version of the Boy Scouts in, in Scotland. It's the Cubs, we can call it. Hmm. And we were on this expedition hiking in the woods and um, we came across this uh, corpse of a dead bird by the side of a path. And I was um, hanging back from the group and the other boys that I was with thought it was um, really funny to, to kick this corpse around um, in the forest. Hmm. And I just remember being frozen on the spot and, and horrified, I hadn't, I, I hadn't learned that kind of cruelty and I didn't know how to respond. And I that's one of the earliest memories I have of recognizing that I think about animals in a different way to the majority of people. Mm -hmm. And only in the past few years or so have I started to tie that insight together with my queerness and how I exist in the world and do my animal activism. Because at the same time that those boys were showing me what it means to be to be cruel and dismissive of animal life. They were also teaching me that my queerness, which I hadn't yet come to terms with or even identified in myself, that there was something wrong there too. So this speaks for me to the way that these, um, these oppressions make up the same terrain that they, they intersect. So <laughs> fast forward from this origin story to the work that I do. I, I started out going to law school with this naive notion of wanting to do something good for the world. Um, and I've been trying to find my path to figure out how to make that happen. And um, for a while it was um, working with NGOs and I was working in Brussels on animal welfare and specifically on international trade issues, trying to influence how um, the EU was, was um, including animal welfare in its trade legislation. Mm. It was a hard gig. Brussels is um, an interesting environment to be working in as, a, as an animal liberationist. And what I learned was that, um, which I think is a really valuable lesson for all of us, is there are so many different kinds of ways to be an activist. Mm -hmm. And I'd always had aspirations to work in academia. I'm, I'm happiest when I'm in the classroom teaching or learning and reading and writing. And I've found a way to be a, a skull activist and to, to use the insights that I've developed to try and um, make change in a different way, whether it's through educating and learning together with students and doing some slower, less reactive thinking that's, that we need for the, the frameworks that we work with and how we kind of build our ideas more, more broadly. So that's, that's how I've got to where I am today. And, and I'm really passionate about making work in academia more accessible, more widely. So it's, it's really great to be able to talk to this work, um, to talk about this work with you today. So the article that we're going to speak mainly about today is the one you've written called Second Wave Animal Ethics and Global Animal Law, A View from the Margins. So do you want to just expand on that um, in terms of what do you think uh, first wave animal ethics is? And then we could maybe, and some of the issues around that, and then we could go on to look at like the proposal of second wave animal ethics that you're making here. Yeah, so first wave animal ethics isn't really entrenched yet as a terminology. How, how these things become entrenched, I don't really know. It's a gradual <laughs> process. 
But I, I suppose I'm proposing that maybe we could start to identify and distinguish between a first wave and a second wave. Um, because I see potential for really interesting ways to go forward and talk about animal ethics differently. And I guess my insights here come particularly from a, a legal background where I'm seeing that most of the arguments that are used in legal scholarship and um, the normative basis of law, they tend to be quite restricted. So, so for me, the way I define first wave animal ethics is there are the kinds of animal ethics that commit to or, or perpetuate the concept of an other. So if I could explain it, if you find yourself relying on arguments that animals are like us in order to um, kind of forward your animal activism, um, and you think that animals should be protected because and only because they're like us, I consider that to be a, a um, kind of typical of a, a first wave argument. Mm. I guess we'll go on to talk a bit more about what I mean by that. But for me, kind of a typical example of um, first wave animal ethics would be the kind of seminal works that probably a lot of us in, uh, um, have um, on our bookshelves. So the likes of Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, The Case for Animal Rights by Tom Reagan. There are features of these arguments that I find to be um, distinctive and that I think group them together and that I, I think we could usefully refer to them as being part of a, a wave. Mm. By moving into a second wave, I, I want to be clear that this isn't because I think we're leaving those arguments in the past. I, I think they will continue to live on and inform our work, but I do think that we have the scope to be looking more broadly, um, to be looking to other, other people for insight, to be looking to other kinds of systems of thought, and I, I also think that the movement now is at a place where it's strong enough to be turning inward, to be kind of reflecting upon the ideas that have formed the, the basis of our thinking and to be, to be challenging ourselves to think in different ways to see if they might be more helpful. I think that first wave animal ethics does what Audre Lorde tells us is impossible. It, it tries to use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. I don't think that's going to work. A lot of people will disagree with me and, and that's okay, but I think there's some interesting other ideas we could be exploring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from knowing some of the detail that you mentioned that we'll go on to discuss, I would agree with that because um, I think that ultimately a lot of the first wave stuff could be considered to be like reformist it's, you know, it's, it's basically just trying to tinker with the system. And so even animal rights is like, as it's laid out anyway, by like Reagan and Singer and so on. And Frankie Owen even maybe is, um, it might improve lives for, for some animals, but overall, I think that the, like the, the rights thing, and I think you mentioned this as well, comes from like that liberal humanist kind of tradition. Mm -hmm. And actually we might want to move away from that totally. And that's like a scary thought when I start speaking to people about it or like thinking about it, like, oh, and you know, what does that mean for human rights? And should we just <laughs> scrap the whole thing, you know? And it's like, whoa, there's so many people out there fighting for their rights and for, for animal rights and for rights for nature and so on. So it is like, but, but we do like you say, we have to start questioning this stuff because if we never question the framework, then you know, we may just be making these like changes within the system, but if you're not, but I think a lot of animal rights activists are keen on changing. We also, you know, change the system and that means getting, getting rid of some stuff, you know, and starting something new, building something new outside of the system. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. It's um, questioning the system that we've been given and using tools that are our own, that aren't the tools that have been given to us. And that is really scary work. And every time that I write about this or talk about it, I think, oh my God, people are going to hate this. You know, it's, it's hard enough to get to terms with what is deemed to be very radical arguments in society at large when it, we're talking about animal rights, for example. But to say <laughs> potentially mm. animal rights isn't radical in this framework, um, you know, how much work do we have to do to get to grips with these things? But I think it doesn't have to be as daunting as it seems, because I think it just reflects a different way, a different way of thinking or coming to our conclusions. And it's um, listening to different audiences as well. So I, I a, theme, a theme amongst first wave authors is that there's a lot of dominant representation of white, male, cisgendered and heterosexual um, ideas um, or ideas stemming from, from those people. And I think we need to be looking broader than that. We know the animal liberation movement is a lot more diverse than that. If we maybe go on to um, look at some of what you see as the, the limitations of the first wave. So one of those, um, you've, well, you mentioned that there's four key limitations and the, one of those is the similarity argument. Mm -hmm. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, so in my article, I talk about four different limitations, as you said, um, that I see in first wave animal ethics and um, four potential ways we can move forward using different kinds of theory. And the first one, as you mentioned, was um, a reliance on um, what is called similarity theory. We were talking a little bit about that already when I mentioned that I, I think that first wave animal ethics relies on this um, argumentation that Animals have to be like us in relevant ways in order to matter, ethically speaking. When you start turning to um, different kinds of theorists or writers, I think we can immediately recognize that there's problems with that. So for me, that kind of argument has never sit right with me because I know that ethical argumentation based on similarity just doesn't work for communities like the queer community. You know, we, we don't want to be recognized as and having have our um, struggles recognized as ethically significant because we are similar or like um, the dominant heterosexual or, or cisgendered group in relevant ways, we want to be recognized for our uniqueness and our distinctness. Mm. For me, there's no reason why that shouldn't be um, ethically, eth um, ethically relevant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we'll all be familiar with arguments about animals, um, advanced cognition or, um, or, or things like that in order to try and argue that they're ethically considerable. And I see that as a, as a potential limitation. So one example I can think of, and this isn't to at all to discredit the work of, um, of these people because they're doing incredible work. Um, some of you might have heard about the, so some of the listeners might have heard about the Non-Human Rights Project, um, which is based in the US and run by a, a lawyer and academic called Stephen Wise. So they're arguing that animals ought to be given rights in the law, really, um, really advanced steps that they're trying to, to take in the US. And they're focusing a lot of their arguments on the great apes. And their argumentation in court is based on the fact that animals are relevantly similar to us. So if you read Stephen Wise's books like um, Drawing the Line or um, Rattling the Cage, I think those are the right titles, almost the entirety of the books are dedicated to setting out how those, those animals are similar to us. And 
I think it's very likely that Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project are using an incremental approach to try and break that barrier, that species barrier to say, okay, let's start with the great apes and then we can move on and on and on and on. Mm. But the problem for me is that we're starting with this model where we have to assimilate um, in order to be recognized. And I just don't see, I don't see the long-term benefit of that unless we're to completely, after the fact, flip around our thinking. Um, it seems also like a, like a, an incredibly long journey that um, will face so many challenges because like aren't there so many different ways to consider how certain animals are like us and to what degree and in what ways they aren't and I mean like what happens when we get down to like aphids like how are they how do we know like what qualities about aphids are like us enough that they will be allowed to have rights, you know? Yeah. So it's like like a huge, long, like kind of slow reform project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what's interesting is you mentioned the rights for nature movement. We're seeing progress mm. being made within the rights for nature movement that doesn't rely on anthropomorphizing the environment. You know, they use, um, they use different methods to argue for um, attributing rights to to rivers or mountain ranges. So I see that poten potentially there's um, inspiration to be found there for animal rights activists too. Mm. That's interesting. So they're still kind of using the rights framework, but they're taking a different approach to get there. Is that right? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, how could you anthropomorphize a, a river yeah. or mountain range no judge is going to be convinced by that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah totally. that, that actually kind of speaks to the um the second um drawback that i see with first wave animal ethics and it's mm -hmm. um linked to the similarity theory but the the second drawback is that i see that we're relying on these circles of moral concern in our thinking and as animal liberationists we're arguing okay we have this circle that determines who's in and who's out who do we have to think about ethically and who can we disregard? And we're seeing that animals are outside of a circle and we're arguing, well, let's pull them inside for whatever reason. Um, first wave animal ethicists argue on the basis of similarity that we ought to pull them inside, but you could argue that in different ways too. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I've brought out in this paper is that I think potentially this model of the, the circle with a harsh in-out divide is quite harmful in itself. Mm -hmm. And I... I I can't see this as anything but ignoring the past. You know, we're making these strides towards recognizing different different groups of, of humans as ethically significant in, in various different struggles and animals as well. Um, do we not see that we're making the exact same move as people in the past have? And somehow we think that we've got it right, that we know how the line should be drawn. But the problem for me with, with having this line in the first place, this, this circle of moral concern, is that we're closing off potentially through fruitful thinking about those who lie outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if I've got the circle of concern right, it's basically the way maybe most people might think of it is um, that there was a time when, you know, uh, the only kind of, people that mattered were were um, men, particularly white men. And then like women were outside that circle. And then the circle got widened to include women. 
and then the circle got widened to include people who weren't white and and so on um i mean that's really simplistic right but that's kind of how it came about it, it's the core idea and yeah. um that's kind of how this the um the core functioning of this circle of concern that i'm interested in is how there is this harsh in out divide mm. because you've got to draw a circle first right before you can expand it so that's what you mean about how the minute you draw a circle you're excluding exactly. someone yes. potentially yeah. yeah and i think that that is one of the reasons why animal activists at times struggle to work together with environmental activists because we've been accused of having these completely different cosmic visions, which mm. I don't think has to be the case. Um, and I, I think I think animal activists have also, as we've talked about, struggled to work together with um, uh, those working on other social justice justice issues. And I, I think all of this kind of speaks to, to one another. All of these problems are kind of interrelated. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds about right, actually. So, for example, maybe like um, an environmentalist might say, well, you know, I, I've got concerns. I think this river should have rights. And the animal rights activist might go, hang on a minute. We've got to give animals rights. They're at least sentient, but rivers aren't. What are you talking about? Is that what you mean maybe about these kind of different kind of worldviews that people might have? But actually, there's so much common ground between us. You know, we're not that, we're not working on, completely different things here yeah and i think there's scope to move towards different ethical frameworks that might help us cooperate even better with these other groups um, mm -hmm. so while there's we already recognize that there's a lot of common ground i think we're being blocked in some ways by the sorts of ethical frameworks that we're using even if we're not aware of them especially mm -hmm. if we're not aware of them actually mm -hmm. okay and did you want to move on to the next bit, which was about the liberal tradition? Yeah, so the, the third problem that I've identified um, with first wave animal ethics is a reliance on liberalism. For some, liberalism will sound like a great thing. You know, it means um, the political left, it means freedom and self-determination and all these things. But there are some interesting works, and I, I um, derive my thinking here mostly from uh, feminist ethics of care, um, but there's interesting work talking about how the liberal tradition has um, created this over-reliance on the concept of rights. And we were talking about this before, you know, it feels very scary to move away from the concept of rights because they're so central to our whole, our whole conception and idea of, of liberation and of social justice. But it's not the only path. Um, I, I think it's been presented to us as the only path, but there are others. And I, I think there's interesting work, um, particularly in feminist ethics of care that will present alternatives. The fourth problem that I identify, which I think will be the most challenging for a lot of animal liberationists is the idea of um, universality of our, our ethics. So um, convincing ourselves that we can, we as individuals can come up with or think through these ethical systems and frameworks and once we get it right, like, like a mathematical problem, it can be applied across the board and it'll always work. And this kind of approach is um, ignorant of context. And I think it's um, caused us to run into a lot, of, a lot of issues, particularly in the way we talk about abolitional vegan, uh, abolitionist veganism, for example. And that's not to say that that's um, not a standpoint that anyone can have, but I think 
by thinking through contextuality and the potential dangers of trying to universalize our way of thinking, we can think about how to, how to pursue our goals in, in better and more fruitful ways. Mm. Yeah, so with universalism then, I mean, the main problem is basically that we're thinking we can come up with one solution that we can just like roll out across the world and it'll fit in every context, which is obviously not, um, probably just not realistic. And that's part of that problem with rights, isn't it? That it's like, well, human rights, at least I think focuses on like the individual. So like the inherent worth is in the individual or something like that. Mm -hmm. Another thing I was thinking about was there's a risk that um, if we are just going to roll out this kind of one way to do things, that is pretty much like Western colonialism all over again. And yeah, uh, the, you point that out about there's the risk of like um, ethnocentric universalism. So we need to be aware that we should be listening to like indigenous people on this on these matters as well. Because I suppose the uh, Western worldview or the, the people who want to uphold the Western worldview are very keen to, um, to hold on to it and to say that this is the one and only right way and we know the kind of problems that that has caused. Yeah, exactly. So the problem that I see with universalization is, is exactly that, that when we're working in a Western or um, Global North context, um, we're buying into the idea that our, our existence as, as um, white Westerners doesn't have a value that it's neutral and objective and that mm -hmm. our perspectives can apply everywhere. And yet, whenever we're dealing with other social justice issues, whether they're concerning um, issues of gender or sexuality or disability or so on, we tend to regard those movements as having a kind of value. We tend to think, well, that's not really relevant here. That perspective doesn't come to bear on these issues. But why is it that a white Western perspective can be applicable universally? Mm -hmm. And I think that that, um, that belief comes through really strongly in a, in a lot of the work that the animal liberation community is doing in a way that's harming our objectives um, because we, we are buying into um, colonial patterns of influence and, and that's not always true and I'm certainly not saying that animal protection is um, is a western value because it exists across the globe what I'm saying is we just need to be very mindful of a history of colonialism um, particularly when we're working on international or global kinds of activism mm So I've covered first wave and some of the issues around that. Do you want to move on to explain then how you see like kind of the second wave unfolding and some of the concepts in there that you've got? Yeah. One really important thing I would want to point out is that this is really just a first exploration of how we might define a second wave of animal ethics. And I don't know if it's going to prove useful to people. It, it did for me, but it, it might not catch on. Who knows? But what, what, I, um, what I see is important is um, leaving space for um, this idea of second wave animal ethics to, to grow and expand. And I, I certainly don't think that it will be homogenous or, or that all of the ideas will even be consistent or that they will all 
live well with one another. I think there might be a lot of contradiction and variety therein, but I think that's okay. So I kind of see, as I've mentioned, first wave approaches aiming for this universal system of ethics that we can apply everywhere. And I tend to, I I like to think of the second wave as instead being more of a toolbox Mm -hmm. where we can pull out different tools from different perspectives that might prove useful in certain situations. And, you know, this is all really a, a intellectual work in progress I suppose so um, mm-hmm. there, there are no definitive answers here um, but what I what I have done is pulled together um, a lot of um, theorists a lot of whom are writing from marginal perspectives and and bringing that to bear on their work um, I bring them to the forefront and I think that a lot of their ideas could um, could inform this second wave and how we might do um, animal law and animal law studies differently mm. okay great yeah, and I think that's important, actually. Um, I think the way you're describing it as a toolbox is good because I think that's what we need, really, in kind of the activist community at the minute is we need some new things to experiment with. And I think we also need to... I've been saying this to a few people probably on recent podcasts, but I think AFCO mentions this You've got a framework that you work within, but when new information comes about that challenges that framework, you should be willing to kind of look at it and kind of think, hey, do I need to rethink my framework here? She also mentions about, um, you know, as an activist, you shouldn't feel that you should have to feel comfortable because if you're feeling comfortable, you're maybe not kind of being challenged enough. I think in in mainstream veganism, there's a real push, and especially obviously from the kind of influencers who benefit financially from it, but there's a real push to like have the right answers and have like the one true answer on any issue. And obviously they've got like, you know, here's the five responses to this question that a non-vegan might pose to you or whatever. So all these like hard facts and answers, which actually don't allow for any kind of really broad broadening out. Of, of our thinking, which is exactly what we need to do. So ambiguity, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but um, yeah, not not knowing the answers right now is okay. Because um, like, yeah. like you said, I think you said at the start that you think the movement's in a place where we could start to look inward now and just start working a bit more with this stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are places where we'll need those, you know, five responses or whatever, when we're being challenged in an environment where we just need to get out easily, relatively unscathed. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of environments where we're able to do this deeper thinking and to be internally reflexive. So we're being reflective, but also acting upon that reflection and changing. And I think one of the one of the best lessons I've learned by kind of growing up in academia is that the best kind of knowledge we can have is the knowledge of where our gaps are, where where the things that we don't know yet. And also being willing to change our minds, I think is crucial and willing to be proven wrong. Because if we're starting from a position of believing we have the right answer and we won't be convinced otherwise, there's, there's no room for growth or learning there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that really hits the nail on the head with kind of some of the problems in the mainstream movement is that there are people who just will not admit that they don't know the answer to something or that they could possibly be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. One, one quote I really like on this is um, Donna Haraway writes about staying with the trouble and mm-hmm. this, this whole concept I really like, and I, it, it stuck with me and it, for me, it just encouraged us to 
live in those difficult spaces and to live in those difficult questions and not to avoid them and not to think that, you know, because we're living as ethical vegans, we have, we have closed off ethical thinking that we're, we're done and we're finished. I, mm. I tend to see it as the start of a ethical journey rather than the end mm. goal. Yeah, absolutely. So if we want to move on then to kind of, we were looking during the first wave, at, you picked up on like four kind of key areas that you saw as limitations. And for the second wave, you've got some proposals to how you think we could actually do it and move forward. Do you want to explain some more on that? Sure. Um, so I guess taking similarity theory first, um, seeing as that's where we started, um, there's a few a few different ideas that I find really helpful in turning away from similarity theory and trying to do something different. So the problem with it has been identified in a lot of different places and the likes of Catherine McKinnon have written that, you know, if we were only to protect the most cognitively able species, it would be like the start of the feminist movement that focused on the rights of elite women. It's, um, hmm. it's not really enough. So she talks about seeing animals in, on their own terms. And for me, that means rejecting paternalism and seeing animals um, for, for who they are and acting in ways that they might want us to act rather than, um, rather than coming to those conclusions ourselves. And that's a really difficult process of you know, listening and looking for signs, but it's one that I think is important. Mm. Um, so one, one tool that I kind of fo focus on in the article I've written that I think is helpful in this regard, it comes from a legal scholar, um, her, her name is Martha Nussbaum, and she's actually very liber liberalistic. So <laughs> this speaks to the fact that um, I don't think all of the ideas in this toolbox are gonna be complementary, but I think she says something really helpful for moving away from a similarity theory. And Martha Nussbaum thinks that in our, our dealings with animals and animal ethics, that we ought to shift away from focusing on suffering, which you know we will all work with suffering a lot, um, and to focus instead on the idea of flourishing, which she thinks that offers a more realistic picture of what animals would want for themselves. So thinking through what they're able to be and do and helping them to flourish as the sort of thing that they are. Um, affording the dignity that would be relevant to those those situations and to those species. So I think that kind of opens up a good question about our obsession with suffering as animal activists. And, you know, perhaps that could become just one benchmark amongst many. And to, to be focusing on flourishing instead might, might allow us to, um, you know, um, beings that are not like humans are able to, are able to flourish. Um, when we're focusing on suffering a lot, we're focusing on the idea of sentience, which is, might be controversial, but it could be regarded as a capacity similar to mental cognition and so on that make us um, that make us human, that make animals like us. If we were to think about flourishing instead, I think you know anything could flourish. Um, plant life can flourish, um, just about anything. So it kind of opens us up to this broader realm of of thought, which I think could be interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the focus on suffering in the animal rights movement is just so overbearing, actually. If you were a non-vegan and you didn't know much about it and you were introduced to the animal rights movement, I think you would probably just think that, you know, all we talk about is how animals suffer and how they're victims and how everyone who isn't vegan is guilty of making the animals suffer, like directly. <laughs> 
you know, because obviously, because like most people eat meat and stuff. So although you could argue that, I'm not sure it's like totally helpful in terms of trying to bring about systemic change to be like berating just individuals. Um, but yeah, it's the, the suffering is like, it's almost, it's, it's overwhelming really. And I'm not sure that it's, um, it's getting us where we want to be. Yeah. And I think this speaks to something I heard on another episode of your podcast, actually. Um, one of your guests was talking about, you know, focusing on suffering, kind of, um, kind of erasing the individuality and the agency of animals, but they become mm -hmm. just victims and they mm -hmm. are so much more than that and yeah. we ought to be able to see them as more than that in our movement because in the kind of change that we want to see particularly thinking of law and policy here we want to see a movement beyond just preventing suffering or or mm -hmm. we, we want to be actively promoting um, better. Mm -hmm. yeah and the thing about flourishing is really important i think because like you say if we um i suppose that's one of the risks is if we're just focusing on relieving suffering, then we're basically just a welfareist movement, right? Ultimately, which I actually think the mainstream vegan movement, even though it doesn't realize it, is pretty much like a sentientist welfareist movement that thinks it's, it also thinks it's an animal rights movement, but it's actually not even focusing on animal rights because it's uh, almost entirely focusing on veganism. You know, mm. so it's not even like really trying to bring about the systemic legal change, apart from things like you mentioned, non-human rights projects. There's obviously there's good stuff like that going around, but I suppose I'm getting wrapped up in the whole kind of the world of the stuff's rubbish that goes on in social media. And there's a lot of work going on outside of that. So I realize that, but I, I would think that to like people who aren't uh, vegan or aren't really involved with the animal rights movement, if you ask them what you think of like, like what is the animal rights movement about? They would probably just come up with um, this kind of stuff, you know, like sort of angry vegans shouting at people and uh, like slaughterhouse footage. That's that's how animal rights people do it, right? we've discussed similarity and, and flourishing uh, as a kind of different approach. Um, what about looking outside the circle then? Because how do we do that? Because isn't there always going to be, even if we don't draw a circle, isn't there always just technically going to be people who aren't in, included in stuff? Yeah, um, maybe. I, I think there's a few different ways to look at this um, because we're talking about an ethical circle of concern here. So mm. that's kind of where this distinction between law and ethics and know, other things as well comes in. So we may see that um, certain beings aren't having their interests recognized in law, but maybe in the activism that we're doing, we're using ethics that could leave scope for other kinds of beings to be ethically considerable. So I, I, I just tend to see that this, this strict inside outside model in terms of who counts, it, it misses the point and it's, it's been used to forward these oppressive forces in society at large that we're trying to fight against. So I see this as an example of using the master's tools to try and dismantle the master's house. Mm -hmm. So if we're to argue that animals are morally considerable, but then we draw a line and no other form of life is 
is ethically considerable. We're committing the same violence that those before us have committed by excluding animals. I think we're not learning and we're repeating the same patterns. So the, the kind of question or fear based on this is, well, what does that mean practically speaking from an activist perspective? Do we need to be ethically considering plants and you know aliens and robots and tables and chairs and everything? And mm -hmm. I, I think it's a legitimate question if we're talking about doing away with a circle that, that inevitably means if, if everything is potentially in, nothing is off limits for consideration. But I guess that's a, a kind of a core distinction to make there is nothing is off limits for consideration, but in terms of what action is is required of us um, in in day to day life, that doesn't necessarily change quite as quickly. But the thing with doing away with a circle is we keep the door open to learning and progressing. Um, so we, I feel as animal activists, spend so much time kind of tinkering at the edges of, of the moral circle of concern. We're having these debates about welfare science and you know which species are included and which aren't. Mm -hmm. I, I think we could be doing a lot, a lot um, more interesting work if we were to stop focusing on that so much and to start almost taking a precautionary approach where if it seems like something maybe should be included, we start to think through how we ought to to act with regard to it. I think it will just, it will just lend, this approach will lend itself to quicker progression. Um, so in, in this part of the article, uh, one of the things that I draw on is um, some deep environmental ethics, which I think have really interesting ways of thinking to help us here. Mm -hmm. So um, Thomas Berry writes about principles of um, what's called earth jurisprudence. This is kind of the ethical basis for the rights of nature argument. Um, and he talks about, so he's talking about rights and he, he's talking about giving them to individuals and saying that they could all be unique. So maybe birds should have bird rights and insects have insect rights and humans have human rights. So they're all quite distinct and they all look different and they all take into account the different needs of those species. So I find that um, environmental ethics give us some of the tools to, to think through how we can live with that commitment to be considering um, to, to be considering all beings without being completely overwhelmed with responsibility. Okay, yeah, so so with the moral circle then, like you've explained there, that, that sounds like it kind of leads on to the other bit, which was um, the opposition to the liberal ethics. And instead of the liberal approach, we'd maybe be looking at things like interconnectedness, relationality, and, and the care ethic, right? If if we're not going to have that kind of strict uh, who's in who's out approach, then we've got this kind of like more flexible um, working uh, kind of experience that we're going to have to undertake like a daily practice, pretty much. Yeah. So I I draw on a couple of different insights here, which I think both kind of link quite nicely to the idea of this um, moral circle of concern and doing away with it. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the the tools that I use is feminist care theory, and I think care theory gives us a good a good sense of what kind of actions we might want to um, we might want to take when considering um, who's ethical and how to to act towards them, but. The um, area of thought that I, I deal with first is um, post-humanist ethics, actually. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I, I think I mentioned Donna Haraway previously. She's one of my, my favorite scholars in this, yeah. in this kind of regard. And so this one insight that she has kind of fundamentally changed the way that I do this sort of work. And she's writing about our human bodies and, and what they are. And she, she writes about the fact that human genomes can only be found in about 10% of the cells that occupy, she refers to it as the mundane space that I call my body. So mm -hmm. the, the thinking or the inspiration to take away from this is that to be one, to be an individual is always to become with many. We're never alone. We're this mess of bacteria and um, creatures and creepy crawlies and, and all this stuff, which I think is really interesting. And if we were to kind of do away with that concept of the individual altogether, you know, what does our activism look like? What does our law look like? I have no idea, but I think that it's potentially really interesting, especially in an age where we're thinking about anthropogenic climate change and all of the disasters of uh, mass extinction events and so on, you know, we need mm. to be rethinking our fundamental concepts and especially in, in kind of legal spaces, we need to be thinking about what the role of law is and, and how it's built from the ground up in a way that, that serves not only us, but all life on earth. Yeah, it, uh, it seems to me that like the individualism is really a problem because in the Western mindset, we've created this idea of human beings as being like, like rugged individualists, just purely made up. Like you say, um, you know, we, we've got, we, you know, we're not, we're not as human as we think we are. Like we've got bacteria, uh, we've got microbes and all that kind of stuff, but we seem to think that we're kind of so separate from um, the rest of, the natural world that we're kind of like transcendent from it you know but actually the thing about inter interconnectedness and understanding like the relationships between how everything fits together seems to me that you know a lot of indigenous knowledge is being brought to the front now mm -hmm. you know it's not like we're inventing this knowledge all of a sudden like oh by the way we're all like you know in a web of life together it's always been there it's just that i guess um colonialism and capitalism has pushed us to this point that it prefers atomized individuals um and so we're kind of good at, it's it's more maybe about unlearning a lot of what we've learned you know Absolutely. And I, I love the fact that you used the word um, rugged to describe individualism because <laughs> it's a it's a very masculinist concept. And mm. I think the individualism that we live with and that we live through is born of Enlightenment era thinking about what it means to exist as an actor in society. And typically what that meant was men going out and being political actors in, in um, public life, um, presenting themselves as 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 individuals, which made invisible the work of women in the home, which enabled them to go out into society and be quote unquote individuals. So I, I think not only do these post-humanist ideas about what the, the space of our bodies um, have something to add here, but also um, feminist care ethics as I work with, but also, as you said, um, indigenous insights and, and all of this kind of knowledge that has existed, but that hasn't formed part of our thinking on these topics to the degree that it potentially could. Mm. So with with, um, with feminist care ethics, I, I find some of the insights really interesting here because they kind of reveal, so this is where we're talking about rights and this scary concept of maybe um, moving, moving away from rights and using something mm. different. And feminist care ethics tend to conceptualize rights as this 
patriarchal leftover of liberal society. So rights were kind of created to help elites white property holding males in market economies. And they're now being put to all of these different purposes. And maybe mm. they're, they're just not um, the best tool suited to those purposes, or that's what um, feminist care ethics will, will kind of argue. So the alternative is, um, is to focus on care as a mode of justice rather than rights as a mode of justice. And I think that we've been um, you know, educated in the West to believe that rights equals justice, that it's the only, it's the only way to achieve it, but care is, is an alternative, an, alter, an alternative path or, or even an alternative to justice altogether. You know, maybe we think about mm. responsibility and um, relationality instead. So feminist care ethics, we'll, we'll talk about that. And there's an idea there about foregrounding responsibility rather than rights. And to work in a more contextual way, um, to recognize that interconnected web of life, to, to recognize our relations with one another mm-hmm. in our ethical thinking and to put that at the foreground. Um, mm. And another, another really important insight from care theory that I like is the value that it attributes to emotional knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, the work being done here is trying to erode this false dichotomy between emotion and rationality, where emotion is thought to be erratic or um, womanly in a lot of in a lot of places. It's it's not the case. And there's a lot of a lot of theory that supports the idea that emotion is 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 knowledge. It's um, it can be it can be considered, it can be um, deep and insightful. And it's been it's been put to the side in an interesting way in the animal liberation movement. There's been a desire to distance ourselves from the image of an emotional or, you know, God forbid, um, hysterical animal rights activist, which is a image that is typically associated with the female. And I think in a lot of the first wave texts, we see this um, desire to move towards rationality, to try and present as very male and neutral and collected and um, born of science and rationality rather than emotion. Mm. And I think that this has left us... Um, left us with really strange ways of talking to one another. And, and in society, we, we need to have this divorce of, um, of emotion from knowledge, which I just don't think speaks to the reality of things. Mm. Um, so I, I like feminist care ethics because they allow us to bring that kind of knowledge back into our ethical thinking. And I think that's important. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So, yeah, so... The other point that you um, cover in the second wave um, approach is um, we were talking earlier in the first wave about the kind of ethnocentric universalism. And Mm. in the second wave, it would kind of, um, you know, look at that problem and would be working against or maybe to kind of deconstruct or to avoid um, like ethnocentric hegemony. Um, Do you want to expand a bit more on that? Yeah, so this, you know, this call for contextualization with our, within animal ethics is, is not new. Um, this is um, quite popular in critical animal studies and other spaces as well. But like I mentioned, I'm trying to bring this to um, legal scholarship in areas where this hasn't really been recognized yet. And I, I particularly work on um, global animal law. My, my PhD is in global animal law and international trade. And I'm trying to nuance our understanding there um, of what animal law needs to be, um, that it doesn't need to have this universalizing force and that, it, that 
that is potentially inappropriate and ineffective. Hmm. So one of the most difficult questions that I find for animal liberationists to think through here is, um, is, is the question of the, the context in which we developed our ethics. Because um, this, this kind of um, works in a couple of different axes, I suppose, because we're brought up with um, ways of thinking and developing our own knowledge and our own ideas in the West. And I think that that tends towards this um, idea of universalization, that if we come up with the right answer, then it would be true across the board. So what I'm trying to deal with um, in thinking about these issues is to really internalize the fact that we've um, developed our ethics in, um, well, for, for, for a lot of um, your listeners, I gather, we'll be talking in a Western context. And for me, that is something that I've had to wrestle with is the fact that I will come to conclusions that I, I think are ethically right. And I struggle to see, um, you know, maybe contexts in which, in, in which they wouldn't be right but I have to accept the, the context in which I reached those conclusions and the situatedness that I have and the kinds of interactions with animals that I've grown up with and seen and, and how I've come to form these worldviews. And even if we don't feel the need to contextualize the substance of our own ethics, I think I, I maybe mentioned this before, the way in which we should be talking to one another and particularly if we're talking about doing kind of policy or, or legal work, we need to leave the scope for other, other, um, other people to have other ideas or different ways of doing things. E even if we agree about animal protection, but we think that we ought to be going about it in a different way. Um, you know, that's, that's what it means to be working in a democratic way, I suppose. And mm. I think that's also the only way that we're gonna see progress in international legal um, contexts because yeah, we, we just we can't be perpetuating this pattern of of um, neo-colonial influence. It's it, it just won't work, and it's it's not just. Hmm. So, if activists then have this like toolbox that you've proposed um, and we've got some new ways of thinking and we're starting to consider um, other ways of kind of bringing animal ethics into law. Um, have you got any examples of how we might go about doing that or some of the difficulties that might come up or like the, the benefits of, of doing that? Yeah, because it, it is tricky to um, apply these insights in really practical settings when, when we're talking about the law, for example. Um, but what I found this kind of thinking useful because most animal protection law is, whether it recognizes it or not, and usually it doesn't, it, it's rooted in first wave animal ethics ideas, particularly um, animal welfare and the concepts of unnecessary suffering, which are quite utilitarian and kind of reminiscent of Peter Singer, um, for example. Um, so I, I think that these um, second wave ideas could inspire potential um, potential paths forward um, to, to look to different models of animal protection and law. And I work on this in the context of um, this emerging discipline of global animal law studies. And I'm, I'm finding that this area at the moment is very focused on um, treaty law. So at, at the moment, there's no, there's no treaty for animal protection. There's 
some kind of um, incidental treat, uh, protection of animal welfare and conservation treaties and um, there are some informal standards, uh, standards from the World Organization on Animal Health, but there's no treaty on um, animal protection. But um, treaties aren't the only form of international law. There's, there's lots of different ways that we could aim for um, animal protection. And I think there's this kind of obsession with treaty law within the global animal law community, thinking that we need this, this um, approach that could potentially be universal, although a lot of treaties um, are very far from being universal in terms of who signs up to them and so mm. on. So for my work, um, thinking of these ideas of like contextuality and so on, it's inspired me to think of different ways of pursuing animal protection in the likes of international law. And the problem with a, a lot of work that's being done towards um, whether it's developing treaties or other kinds of work at the UN to try and solidify the position of animal protection there. Um, the problem is that it's often being, it's often being presented in, um, in, in a bit of a, a Western way, or at least it doesn't seem to me that there's enough of kind of a, a grassroots movement to um, find um, areas of agreement across the globe. There, it's almost like we're taking a Western model of animal protection and trying to globalize it mm -hmm. rather than kind of working um, broadly and diversely with all different kinds of stakeholders to try and figure, figure out approaches that would work in, in different contexts. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a, a lot of really interesting work that's happening um, right now. I think the next, the next few years or even the next decade is going to be really interesting to watch in terms of international law. So just today, there was a, a World Federation for Animals was launched, which has a, a bunch of members amongst a lot of the big NGOs. Um, and there's, there's other work by the likes of the Global Animal Law Association and World Animal Protection and World Animal Net, who are all working on um, different kind of, kinds of proposals at the UN. So it's, it's an interesting space to watch. And I, I think um, by um, adopting some of these newer um, modes of thinking through animal ethics, it could give us the potential to be more more just and maybe more effective in how we're trying to um, promote animal asset, um, animal protection at the international level by by veering strongly away from colonial patterns of influence and this kind of top down um, mode of of governance and trying to kind of build some of our ideas from the the ground up instead. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground then, and I think, you know, we've got a really good idea of kind of the broad scope of what um, what you're proposing there, which is great. Um, so for any activists listening to this at the moment, um, maybe who, you know, don't have any inroads into the kind of the legal field or, um, you know, or maybe just working in kind of grassroots level stuff um, that want to take some action. Do you have Do you have any ideas about what concrete steps they could take to act on um, some of the, the things that you've proposed in the second wave? Yeah, and I, I'm sorry if it's got a little too um, technocratic or <laughs> kind of caught up in the law at points. But no, I, I think there are some kind of useful um, messages that everyone could take away from this because any of us with an interest in animal liberation, you know, we're largely aware of what animal, animal protection NGOs are doing. 
Um, and I think um, e even just in, in working through our own ethics, some of these ideas are, are useful too. So I guess t key takeaways for me would be, you know, be open to, um, I, I think it's always useful if we're open to learning and evolution and, and also taking the time to really reflect about um, you know, what underlying ethics are we using? Have we ever stopped to consider or have we kind of developed them organically? And could we look wider for a more a broader um, range of inputs in terms of how we develop those thoughts? Mm -hmm. um, so, so, for example, like I've said, you know, trying to veer away from using language of sameness is good, which I, I think is quite harmful, but a lot of us don't really realize that or, or um, mm -hmm. act on that Daily, our daily practices or, or activism. Um, an alternative to talking about um, sameness as good is to maybe talk about intrinsic value instead, um, which allows for anything that is um, diverse and different to have an in intrinsic value. Hmm. Um, and I suppose one of, one of the most important things, you know, if I could have one one, one impact on animal activism and, and um, animal legal protection in, in, um, in my career, it would, be, it would be to link these movements closer together, to, to have people realize how these different forms of oppression form part of the same terrain and to see us linking not only with other social justice movements, but, but with environmental protection activism too. And I think a lot of the ethical ideas I've talked about can, can help us with that. So if people wanted to find out more about how they could um, work with these ideas, um, is there any kind of place you would point them in particular? Yes, actually. So there's a, a really great website that I would first of all recommend, which is um, called Animal Ethics from the Margins. Mm -hmm. There's a, a really great kind of um, catalog of, of work that you can look to there if you're looking to diversify your kind of um, ethical ideas. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, I'm I'm going to be continuing to to work on these ideas, um, and I'm I'm hoping that over the next few years I'll be able to to um, kind of increasingly share the work I'm doing in the legal sphere with uh, with non-academic audiences. And I, I'm speaking on your podcast today has been really wonderful, and I hope to do more things like this in the future. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, I'm I'm hoping that at some point I'll I'll start up a blog which um, which will deal with all of these issues. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to come out, but in the meantime, um, any of your followers are welcome to, to follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm just at Ian Offer. Thank you.